This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is John Levy. He's co-founder and CEO of Seek. Prior to co-founding Seek, John served for eight years as the chair of Hypris, a leader in digital RF superconducting electronics, where he remains a board member. Before that, he was a partner at L Capital Partners, a $185 million seed stage tech fund based in the U.S. and Israel, where he led technology investment. John also worked at Interval Research Corporation, a Palo Alto-based think tank sponsored by Paul Allen, where he spun out the first computer vision company in the 1990s. John was the founding CEO backed by Intel and with his team invented the virtual background for video conferencing, pioneered the core technology for platforms such as Microsoft Connect, and developed tracking technology that is used today in EV cars. He's overseen three IPOs and five private company acquisitions. John earned an AB from Amherst College and an MBA from Harvard Business School and is a frequent guest lecturer at Columbia Business School with side gigs at Harvard and MIT. His company, Seek, was spun out of Hypris, the world's leading developer of superconducting electronics. Seek integrates digital single-flux quantum-based classical readout, control, multiplexing, and error correction with a quantum processor on a chip. They are one of the first to have built a superconductor multi-layer commercial chip foundry to design, test, and manufacture quantum-ready superconductors. Seek was spun out of Hypris in 2018 and has raised a total of $30 million from investors that include Merck's M Ventures, LG Technology Ventures, EQT, and Blue Yard. The company is based in Elmsford, New York, with teams and facilities in London, UK, and Naples, Italy. So welcome, John. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. It's uh, great to do this as a podcast and a follow-up to your visit to our chip foundry. Yes, I've been to Elmsford. It's an amazing <laughs> facility for sure. We had a great time there. Yeah. So, John, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to talk a little bit about their own personal quantum journey. And my objective is really twofold to give our listeners certainly a sense of more detail around what you did before you co founded Seek, but also to orient our listeners more broadly to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So please share with our listeners a little bit about your background, path so far, maybe where you grew up, where you, what you studied in school, maybe insight into the companies and organizations where you worked before Seek. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I grew up in LA, uh, and as you mentioned, I went to Amherst College, studied liberal arts and HBS. But as much as what I studied in school, it was really more about what I did either before or after school and courses I took outside of my curriculum that for me were formative. So I think there are kind of two themes. One is designing and building electronics uh, and starting businesses. Both uh, I expressed as an early age. I remember that um, when other kids were reading, uh, you know, kind of interesting books, at, you know, when, at, when we were first starting to read, I, I would read books like A Boy's Third Book of Electronics and then try to build everything that I could build with it. Uh, that was that was my, my idea of reading was that reading should be a thing that enabled you to do stuff. And so, and the stuff I always wanted to do was to build uh, electronics. I used to build Heath kits and Dynaco kits and, and I would design amplifiers and, and build oscilloscopes and stuff like that. 
and you know, even when I was at Amherst, I would take electrical engineering classes outside of Amherst. I took computer science at, at HBS, uh, et cetera. And then when I started my first business at age 12, uh, I used to run neighborhood fairs. And then as a teenager, I made leather uh, purses, belts, and wallets that I sold um, and made a lot of money. And then in, my, in college, I had three part-time jobs, which was nearly killing me. And I made almost no money until I figured out that if I, and I, I, I formed a little partnership with, with a, a guy I worked with, and we started showing films at college campuses. And you know, in my first weekend, I made enough to pay for room board and tuition. Uh, and, and ended up paying for all my living expenses while in college and graduate school. So, so you know, starting businesses, doing things in electronics is, has, you know, I think, important. And then I think that the thing from an educational perspective that's super important for me as a CEO is really around what you learn in a liberal arts setting, which is around critical thinking, creativity, communications, as being a central part of my, of my role and how I work. And you know, when I think back on it and think, what would I study now, knowing what I know and doing what I do, I would definitely consider studying quantum physics, statistics, linear algebra, and philosophy. I think it's that combination that would be like a killer. What a great story. Let's talk about Hypris um, and Seek. So what led you to step away from Hypris? You were there for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, leading that company. And was there like an aha moment in the foundry one day or in the cafeteria or conversation well, with your co-founder? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, in around 2014, we started working on something called the C3 program with IARPA. IARPA is like DARPA, only it's instead of D for defense, it's I for intelligence. And, and the idea was that we wanted, the goal of this program was to build a kind of exascale um, superconducting supercomputer. So really an energy efficient supercomputer. That was the idea. And I'm strongly motivated by energy efficient technologies um, that can make an impact. And in fact, I'd, I'd help to even start another company, a uh, distributed energy company called Biolite. Uh, that I worked uh, worked with for about ten years, but with the the IARPA project, that I saw that our approach to computing based on our superconducting digital SFQ chips could really change the equation on energy performance, speed, scaling, etc. And and by the way, Ivan Sutherland, uh, who you know many of your listeners may know as being one of the inventors of CMOS, some of the world's first work in in computer graphics and, and in other areas, has recently written about um, the strategic importance of superconducting electronics, pointing the way as the next generation of chip technology. But what we realized was that we could use this not only for classical computing, but for, but for quantum computing. And that was the link that we made. Uh, and I had done it with our, our CTO at Hypris, Oleg Mukhanov, who's been a partner with me throughout this process. And then several years later, we added Matt Hutchings, who joined us from his collaboration with us at Syracuse and IBM as a co-founder. And that was our original team. So, so really, it came out of the work on C3 and then some strategic planning work where we said, look, we need to be able to spin out commercially available work. And all the things that we were doing for Hypris were, you know, U.S. government and you know, and kind of with a lot of security clearance, et cetera. 
So we decided to really split the two. And we split the two, by the way, including our chip foundry. Yeah. And I just, the energy efficient conversation makes me have to press you on the name of the company is in fact an acronym. Right, 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 right. right. You tell our listeners what it stands for. Yeah, yeah. So SEEK stands for Scalable Energy Efficient Quantum Computing. And we, it really goes back to the idea, I mean, it's SEEK is the idea of, of, of an aspiration as if you're seeking to do something, and we clearly are. But, um, but it's really around the energy efficiency that is the core of our technology, both at the chip level, but also as we think about the scaling of the entire system, as we think about, say, you know, building quantum data centers, as an example. Yeah. So there's a prevailing perspective that achieving a certain number of physical qubits is sort of the magic wand, or it's going to be the main driver of successful quantum computers. But I know you have a different perspective that's, that it's more about system architecture and maybe how you define scaling. So tell me about the work you're doing at Seek to achieve this objective. Yeah, so... You know, it's interesting. So if we were having this conversation, let's call it, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, the questions we might ask around quantum computing are, you know, can you build a quantum computer and can it run an algorithm? Can it possibly do anything you can't do on a classical computer? And, and certainly we've answered the first two questions. Uh, in fact, we know how to build quantum computers uh, of different kinds. Uh, and so, so, so now the questions um, are, are a little different um, because we know we can build them. In fact, we built a full-stack quantum computer as well, uh, our Seek System Red. But, but, the, but, the, but the, I think the question now has to do with, can we scale these technologies? And if we go back to classical computing, and I'm sort of a student of history, um, and if you look at, at the ENIAC or the Hercules or some of the early digital computers that were, I want to call them prototype computers, um, these were designs that um, one wouldn't necessarily want to scale. So, so for example, the, the ENIAC was built around, um, it was a digital computer, it was built around, around vacuum tubes. And it had switching that looked like a telephone uh, you know, uh, switchboard. Uh, and so these are clearly not the ways that you want to you want to um, think about starting to scale a quantum computer. So we thought about how to start from you know scaling you know at at the outset. And so so typically, I think as you point out, a lot of people will say the definition of scaling a quantum computer is adding more physical qubits. And I might add that you might say, well, you that also means optimizing for coherence and gate fidelity, gate speed, uh, physical, you know, quantum or qubit performance and technology, et cetera. I would say the, the typical quantum metrics. But we were equally interested in energy, heat dissipation, IO overhead, you know, like the wiring, latency, speed, cost, complexity, um, computational support, maintenance, noise, distortion, RF interference, crosstalk, all the things that you need that are practical uh, requirements for any quantum computer, no matter what the underlying technology is. Uh, And so what we wanted to say is that we needed to optimize not just for some of these. So we don't want to just build a quantum computer that has, you know, really great coherence time if our gate speeds are are slow. And we don't want to just have fast gate speeds with... uh, you know, wiring requirements that need, uh, you know, literally, if you scale to a million qubits, 
millions of, of, of cables. So what we discovered was in order to scale, you need to address all of these. And that's the approach that we're taking. Yeah. So tell me about single flux quantum. So yeah. what are your chips based on? And probably more importantly, how are they different from CMOS? Yeah, you- yeah, yeah. So, so, so like the logical, okay. So, so take what, what I just said about what the scaling requirements are. And the logical thing to do is to do what people did in classical computers, which is to use CMOS, uh, which is the prevailing technology for chips to scale. The problem with CMOS is, and even cryo CMOS, putting CMOS in cold temperature, is that CMOS is, um, uh, uses a lot of power, and the, and, and the faster you want it to go, the more power you put into it, and the power, therefore, um, generates heat, which you have to dissipate, and heat becomes the enemy of the performance you need, particularly for superconducting environments. So, so the power and heat equation is problematic. Secondly, these chips are slow. You know, we think of chips as operating at two to four gigahertz as fast chips. Our chips operate at 20 to 40 gigahertz, much, much faster. And they're operating at three to five orders of magnitude lower power. Um, And they're really quiet. And they're all digital. And so what that enables us to do is to actually put all the functionality of a quantum computer on a chip and put it right on top of qubits as a multi-chip module without affecting the performance of those qubits. And by doing that, what we're effectively doing is building a quantum computer on a chip. And in fact, it's what we've done. That's very exciting. Wow. John, let's shift gears and talk about clients, right? So our listeners are always interested in real-world use cases, like yeah. how is, is, this, is this stuff being applied somewhere? Are people generating, you know, either attributable revenue or um, improved efficiency and productivity? I know it's early days, but I read you have a venture called Q Pharma with Merck and BASF right. to build a quantum computer for pharmaceutical and chemical research. So tell me about this partnership. How did it evolve? How do you get together with those organizations? Where are you on the roadmap? And maybe some detail about what the expected outcome might be. Yeah. So our work, thanks for asking that. The, the Q Pharma program is a super interesting one. It's based in the UK and it really came from our, our first uh, work with Merck, where um, Merck actually had reached out to almost every quantum computing company, large and small, academic groups, et cetera, to try to figure out a strategy that made sense for them um, in, um, you know, in, in, uh, across all aspects of Merck's uh, operation. And this, to be clear, this is Merck based in Germany, in Darmstadt. So this is global Merck. And what they, what they saw was that companies could, could show them how to build really convincing prototypes and demos. But nobody had a roadmap for scaling and for scaling to a level that was necessary from their perspective um, for, from an in silico research perspective on things like modeling, you know, molecule modeling, or even working on, um, on uh, formulation and manufacturing. So they reached out to us and wanted to engage with us, and by the way, also invested in us, um, because we had uh, a, good, a good scaling strategy. And we brought them into this program around Q Pharma. And once we did that, we, 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 did, we spent about two years working with BASF to, to identify business cases that were important to them 
And again, a lot of it was around process technology and reducing the energy content in the process technology for important chemicals that BASF produces. So part of this was to identify near-term and longer-term outcomes that could contribute to business value. And so, interestingly, both of them ended up focusing on the requirement of error correction. I guess that's not surprising. Um, and needed architectures that can scale for error correction. And so that's really what we're doing with both Merck and BASF. So, yeah, we've, we released our first quantum computer, as I mentioned, Seek Red. We're coming up uh, by the end of this year with Seek Yellow, uh, sorry, Seek Orange, which is going to incorporate some of our SFQ chips and is going to be able to build out some of the needed architecture for doing error correction, especially around optimizing for, for latency, for low latency. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. I think people are always interested in real world work that's going on. It's very exciting. Um, there still seems to be talk about a winner takes all scenario, right? I mean, right. since we're early days, you know, where maybe one qubit modality becomes the clear leader and maybe others are relegated to history. But what is your take? Is your sense there'll be an entire portfolio possible of, you know, viable quantum computing options based on maybe business objectives or desired deliverables or outcomes? Yeah. So I think it's a great question because I think that, uh, you know, I worked in the venture capital world for oh, close to you know 15 years or so. And, and yeah, we would talk a lot about, you know, winner take all and moats and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but you know, and that's great for, you know, I don't know, enterprise software or something. But what we're talking about is an entire new uh, platform, a, a new category. And, and so I guess the best analog for me would be to think about the way the classical uh, computing world works. So, so, for example, just look at chips. There are, there are log classical logic you know, CPUs. There are GPUs. There are FPGAs. There are memory chips. There are application-specific chips, et cetera. And then there are systems companies, cloud companies, application companies, security companies, networking companies. It goes on and on. And so we have what we have is an entire ecosystem. And I think that's what we're going to see in the quantum computing world. We're going to see a quantum ecosystem of chip companies, operating system companies, systems, cloud application, networking, uh, sensing, you know, kind of you name it. So I think that's one idea. And by the way, I don't think every company that's trying to build a quantum computer, that technology may well be, it may well be suited for things other than just quantum computing. They could be useful for quantum memory or nodes on a network. And I think one other notion about this is that I think there's a, an opportunity for multimodal computing. And I learned this through my work in computer vision, where you know, people would say, we have the solution for computer vision. And what we eventually recognized was it was in the, the, the melding of multiple vision algorithms that enabled us to create higher probabilistic and better outcomes um, than just using a single technology. So we can imagine for a moment uh, you know, where in ion traps, for example, you've got, you know, really great coherence time, but the gates are incredibly slow. Maybe that's useful from a memory perspective. Or we might think about photonics as being, you know, really good, but hard to, 
hard to control and, and you know, photons are not exactly stable, et cetera, but, but great for building networks. And so we might think about, about taking some of these technologies and combining them in, in new multimodal ways to create more powerful systems. Yeah. So in the context of this broad ecosystem evolving, and I, I love that perspective, um, give me a sense of your business model at Seek. Yeah. So, and how it's different maybe from other quantum computing companies. I mentioned that we have built quantum computing systems and we're about to release a new one. Um, but from our perspective, these are reference designs for our chips and for our, and our firmware and software that frankly can be embedded, this kind of solution, in any quantum computer. So our, fir- our, our first focus is on superconducting because that's where we have the most expertise. But, you know, and also it's frankly where the largest companies and the largest number of companies and probably the most mature uh, technology is. And so our ability to do digital readout, control, reset, multiplexing, demultiplexing, and ultimately on-chip error correction is applicable to any, uh, any of these computers, any quantum computer. So we can actually incorporate our chips into you know, your system, if you will, um, using you know, transmons, fixed uh, frequency or tunable, working with fluxoniums, et cetera, any kind of uh, superconducting qubit. And, and what we've also discovered is that um, we can also work with all other quantum modalities. Now, it may be that there's more engineering that's required for our chips, but let's face it, all quantum computers need readout, control, multiplexing, fast reset, error correction, etc. And by being able to supply that as a solution with firmware and software on chip, that puts us in a position where we're not betting on any one technology. We're actually a supplier or potentially a supplier to everybody. So think of yeah. it as being kind of like the NVIDIA of quantum computing. So given that, uh, you know, there are, opportunities for your solution to be embedded in uh, other companies' approaches, if you will. Sure. Um, are there other aspects of the Seek portfolio that you can share, maybe early stage projects or other strategic partnerships that are underway? Yeah. I, I mean, so, so I mentioned before in scaling that one of the areas that we focus a lot on is on latency. Um, you know, speed and latency and bandwidth are really, really critical to the performance of quantum computing and particularly around error correction. And and what I mean by that is that um, if you are trying to optimize for error correction on a real-time basis, the reduction in time is critical because the errors don't stand still. They don't wait for you to to identify them and to to try to solve them or correct them, right? Um, As you're waiting, uh, more errors are showing up. So if you can compress time by having faster systems and having much lower latency and the required bandwidth to be able to supply the resources you need, then what it does is it reduces the burden uh, on your system of error correction. So for example, you might need many fewer physical qubits to an error corrected qubit. And, And as we think about how that scales to error-corrected systems where you have a logical qubit 
where you can you could do this on post-processing basis. When you have a second logical qubit, you need to do everything on a real-time basis. So real-time error correction becomes, from our perspective, the key scaling element for quantum computing. And to that end, we are formed a partnership with NVIDIA to do a ch direct chip-to-chip -chip integration where we're taking our digital SFQ chip and we're creating a direct connection to a Grace Hopper superchip for GPU and CPU. And the whole goal of it is to optimize for latency, speed, and bandwidth for real-time error correction, firstly. And the second of all is to support uh, quantum AI and quantum machine learning so that we can actually have a quantum computer where we have shared quantum and classical resources operating in the lowest latency environment and at the highest possible speed. So it's a direct chip-to-chip -chip integration between a, an NVIDIA GPU and a Seq uh, digital you know, quantum chip. Wow, that's very exciting. I encourage our listeners to check out the press release, which came out a couple of days ago, to learn more about this exciting partnership. Thank you for sharing that, John. Yeah, and it's the first time, you know, NVIDIA has done a lot of work in the quantum space, uh, including uh, doing, you know, some hardware instantiations of an integration. But doing a direct digital chip-to-chip -chip connection is really a step change in the performance of, of you know, what, what will be um, hetero truly heterogeneous quantum uh, uh, computing. Yeah, very exciting. So I want to shift gears for a moment and talk about a topic that's near and dear to my um, area of interest, which is workforce. So right. I want to get your take, uh, and there's lots of talk around, you know, getting a quantum-ready workforce is going to be key to driving this new paradigm. Um, so I want to get your take on the challenges facing a company like Seek in finding talent. Now, you have, you know, organizations around the world, but how do you go about recruiting for your company? Yeah. Um, like you mentioned to me before in a previous conversation, you have some very smart scientists on your team, among others. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. I think I think I think we looked at it and said I think we're either at seventy five or eighty percent of our team have at least one PhD. Um, oh, yeah, right. Um, wow. And it, look, it, it I think everybody knows it's really really hard to find people um, to work on on you know in quantum in general. And I would say, because our core, our core technology is the, the um, meeting of quantum, underlying quantum technology and single flux quantum technology, of which there are very even fewer people who are able to do that. There's a vanishingly small number of people who can address both SFQ and quantum. So it is really hard. So what we have done over the years, it's what we did at, at Hypris, is that we work with teams um, that are developing uh, SFQ, electrical engineers, computer scientists, you know, chip technologies, uh, et cetera. And we bring them on as interns who work with us um, in different aspects of our work. Uh, so, uh, and, and we have people who come to work with us you know, for months at a time, go back, they finish their PhD or they're in the middle of their master's or whatever, they'll come back again. And we've been working with, I mean, doing this for years. Yeah. So other universities you have affiliations with and yeah. other, other roles in specific disciplines maybe that are harder to fill than others. I think listeners yeah. are curious about that. 
Right. So, so, so for example, we work with, we've been working with UMD for a while on fluxonium qubits and now EPFL um, in Switzerland. We've been working with Wisconsin on SFQ. We've been working with University of Cologne in, in Germany on, on error correction, uh, Chalmers University in Sweden around um, qubit fabrication, uh, University of Glasgow in Scotland um, around uh, cross-junction qubits, various universities in the UK, and, and the University of Naples in Italy around superconducting electronics. So, so, so we have a lot of, wow. yeah, I know, I know, I know. Long but list. <laughs> it, it, and, and honestly, I mean, Chris, and, and it grows, but because what we're doing is so incredibly technical and, and difficult, um, you know, I, it's just the nature of the work that we do and the phase of development that our whole industry is in, that there's this strong connection to academic groups and I would say increasingly to government groups too. So mm-hmm. I mentioned before um, Innovate UK, but we've done work, you know, in in the in the EU with various um, programs, and certainly in the US where we've made chips for DOE, DoD, NASA, NIST, etc. Wow! So that's a long list. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Heads up to listeners know that there's a great uh, portfolio of universities where you're connected. Very yeah, cool. Yeah. So, John, we're coming to the end of our conversation, and I always like to close the podcast by asking my guests to kind of look into their crystal ball or wax philosophic and share your vision of you know where quantum computing might be in three to five to ten years, and more broadly, you know what kind of impact you think it's going to have on how we live and work. I think a lot about as we talked about scaling quantum computers. I think it's the the most important thing that we can do now, and to do it on an energy efficient data center basis, I think that this idea around heterogeneity, that quantum computers aren't gonna exist by themselves, they're gonna exist in the world of other kinds of computing, and we should think broadly about what that, what that means and what, that can, what can come out of that, like quantum AI as an example. And then this idea of migrating quantum to the edge. And I've seen this happen in classical computing and in, and, in, and in high-speed communication where everything moves out. And I think that, you know, we all tend to think about data cent- the centrality of data centers and that image that I think, by the way, it was not, a, it was not the right quote, but people said uh, at, there, there was this famous quote that there were only going to be four or five computers in the world. By the way, that was not the right quote, but people still, uh, they still misquote that. But, but there is a very much of a quantum in the center, you know, at the core. And we should also think, I think, about quantum at the edge. And what does it mean to migrate quantum out? And whether that means for sensing, for communication, or for whatever. But I think that's going to happen. Yeah. And, and then just, to, you know, the implication for this, the area that I think is, you know, that I, that's my dream is is using quantum computers for climate modeling. Um, I, I just think that um, that that is the challenge of our the challenge of our time is around climate. Quantum computers, I think, are uniquely positioned to be able to help us do things as as seemingly simple as modeling a cloud, which you can't do in a classical mode, um, to be able to build 
better models so that we actually understand what we're doing to our world and how we can actually affect that in a positive way. Well, great insight, great perspective. I love the idea of quantum at the edge. So that's a, that's a great vision. Thank you, John. Again, thank you for joining me today. I really enjoyed our conversation and look forward to continuing both uh, in person and uh, virtually. Yeah, thanks for inviting me and, and uh, you know, look forward to having you, you visit and, uh, and we look forward to, you know, other companies reaching out and, and talking to us and exploring how um, our chip-based approach to quantum computing can be effective for their work. Yeah, great. I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn as a way to initiate those conversations, perhaps. Point them to the website, seek.com. I see you also, uh, you're on Twitter. The handle is at SeekUS. Or what, or, what, or what Elon Musk wants to call X. Oh, right, right exactly. Yeah, I guess right. yeah, I have to update that. So yeah, thank you again, John, for right, joining me today. Me. Thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with John. Listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already, and please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.